Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez. She is a contributing writer at the New York Times, a longtime investigative journalist, uh, author of several books, including uh, the most recent one called A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thanks, Jordan. It's wonderful to be with you. So let's just kind of start overall of your life as an investigative journalist. Why did you want to do that, and, and how has that been rewarding for you? Oh, what a wonderful question. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm the Watergate generation of journalists. Um, I was in uh, college when, um, um, when uh, the early days of investigative reporting started to take shape and um, was fascinated by the idea of holding powerful people accountable. That, that sort of was the essence of what I thought um, of financial journalism being. And, and you've actually done it. What, uh, I mean, is it very satisfying when you bring down famous and powerful people? <laughs> well, you know, you don't always bring them down, Jordan. That's the, that's the hard part. But what you do, I hope, if you're doing your job right, is, um, is shed light on what they're doing. You know, we, we focus a lot, and it's absolutely critical that we do so, on holding people with political power accountable to the country. That the people who elected them, the people for whom they work. But I realized along the way in my career in the early 80s that there are other uh, focuses of great power, immense power, that we also need to hold accountable. And those are the people with economic power and financial power over our lives. And you know, American uh, business and American finance have an enormous impact. I mean, they shape everything from what we wear to what movies we see to what our suburbs look like. They have enormous power in our lives. And I saw financial investigative journalism as a way to, to put the same kind of accountability spotlight on that, uh, that community of power, if you will, and... Um, it, it wasn't a common activity when I first got into it. I'm happy to say it is far, far more um, uh, active now. Um, but it's, it's a, sometimes it's a doubly hard chore, Jordan, because uh, whereas most American citizens are pretty well fluent in the language of political life, they're not so fluent in the language of financial and economic life. And so you not only have to do the digging. You not only have to um, uh, come up with the stories and, and prove them and, and render them bulletproof, you also have to explain them in a way that uh, an interested general reader can grasp and can, can get the significance of. So it's both investigation and in a way translation. And that's I think what has made it so fascinating to me over the years is that that double challenge. You have to both investigate, but then communicate across a sometimes a pretty big knowledge gap. So during this hour together, we're going to talk a lot about uh, the, the crash of 1987, uh, Enron, Bernie Madoff, all kinds of things you've been involved in over the years. 
let's just kind of start your process as an investigative journalist. How do you get the original lead that something is not right in a particular area? Do people come to you or do you kind of sniff it out? How do you start the whole process? I've had stories start all across the board, Jordan. Sometimes it's a tip. Uh, Sometimes it's the anomaly. You know, the old uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, cliche about the the dog in the night uh, that didn't bark. Sometimes it's something that didn't happen that should have. Some um, uh, development that shouldn't have happened and did. And that starts you asking questions about why. What's behind that? What's the explanation for that? and sometimes it's just observing that some new force has emerged um, or some new figure or some new company has emerged um, and is starting to have in, have influence and you just, you know, you want to do the, the backgrounder. You want to f- figure out what's going on. So it can start in any number of ways, but the, the first thing I try to do is gather enough information to frame a, a hypothesis about what my story would be. Now, I re-examine that hypothesis, take it apart, put it back together again a half dozen times in the course of research. But you have to, you know, before you set out from the garage, you have to have some idea where you're going, you know, or you just wander around forever. Uh, so I try to have some idea of, um, of where this story could take me and collect what I already know that can help me. This is sources that I already have, previous stories I've done that have given me some background. And then I critically try to identify what I'm going to have to learn to get this story across the finish line. What don't I know? Where are my gaps in knowledge? And who can fill them? And now, in many start- cases, the, the, the uh, perpetrator is not going to cooperate with you, obviously. So yeah, uh, and is, it, is, it, is it harder today because of all the legal layers and the PR people and so on to uncover these things uh, like a Bernie Madoff who did what he did for however many years, 50 years or something, you know? Yeah, well, you know, it's a two-edged sword in a way. I mean, it is true that um, technology has given any target corporation or target figure some wonderful tools to aim back at the media. I mean, uh, if you're working on a story, there's nothing that prevents a corporation, the minute you surface and say you have some questions that you'd like to pose to them, there's nothing to prevent them from creating a website that trashes all the work you've ever done in your life. You know, yeah. that, that the internet can become um, a, a defensive tool for the people or the, or the entities we're trying to hold accountable. But it also levels the playing field on my side, too. It gives me remarkable tools for reaching deep down into the population to find sources who may know what I need to know. It, it allows me to analyze big data. And you know, if, if you've got a, a, an insurance company that's got, whose policies are elapsing at a rate that's way above the norm, big data can help you prove that and, and just bulletproof it. Um, so I, I try to look at it as uh, a tool that either one of us can wield, and I just have to use it as intelligently as I can, understanding that you know that the uh, subject of the story is free to use it too. And what is your sense of the appetite of the media to invest in investigative journalism today? I mean, New York Times maybe, but is this yeah. 
less less uh, available now to have the time and resources to do this on newspapers and magazines yeah. and TV around the country? I, I, I won't pretend. That I'm not, I'm not going to be Pollyanna here. I'm not going to put on my rosy, rosy glasses. But um, because without a doubt, over the past 10 years, we've seen the number of, of big city regional newspapers that are able to afford a robust investigative operation dwindle. Um, and, and that's been hard to see. I've seen a lot of wonderful investigative reporters who are longtime friends who um, have been squeezed out of, of uh, operations that we all thought would go on forever. So that's the dark side. It, investigative reporting is expensive. It's time consuming. You don't hand it to your junior interns. You've got to have trained, experienced um, uh, reporters. And you've got to have a legal team willing to back them up when people start rattling lawyers uh, at them. So it's, it's not cheap, you can't, and you can't do it on the cheap. It's dangerous to try. On the other hand, and here is some brighter uh, options, as the traditional ways of doing investigative reporting have been brought under increasing pressure, we're seeing some novel ways of doing investigative reporting uh, rise up. Uh, nonprofit organizations all across the country, and some of them with global reach, like the organization that brought out the Panama Papers, a remarkable um, uh, uh, compendium of, of uh, tax dodging activity. Those are nonprofit organizations that are supported by uh, good government donors and, and people who believe in accountability and transparency, and they're doing remarkable work. Sometimes they're doing it teaming up with mainstream organizations. ProPublica, which is one of these nonprofits based in New York, has done some great work with the New York Times and others. Um, the, sometimes uh, you're seeing uh, untraditional partnerships. WNYC radio station partnering with ProPublica to develop a, a line of reporting called Trump Incorporated. Very, very important look at the Trump businesses and how they intersect with the Trump administration. So. We're to some extent, I admit, we're making this up as we go along because the old traditional ways of doing this are under such threat. But we are coming up with some, some powerful solutions that are producing some great stories. So you are hopeful then for the future of investigative journalism. It's just going to be different than it has been in the past. Agreed. Absolutely. And when I see the younger reporters coming into this field and the talent they bring into this field, I'm even more hopeful. I mean, look, if you look across the board right now, just at the investigative reporting that's being done on the, on the political front, I mean, forget all the wonderful stuff that's happening on the financial and corporate side, which is my bailiwick. Uh, you've got USA Today getting scoops. You've got Associated Press getting scoops. You've got the McClatchy Papers getting scoops. You've got all of the television stations. You've got the Washington Post. You've got the Wall Street Journal. And you've got the New York Times. You've got big, robust, and they're all competing to get great stories. So, um, you know, it, it's, I wish uh, we had the resources of 15 years ago to bring to this moment. But but we don't have the technology problems of 15 years ago either. Um, so I'm, I am optimistic that uh, we're going to find, that we are finding the right ways to do this. Very good. We're going to go for a break and come back and talk about the crash of 1987 and what kind of led up to that. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez. She's a contributing writer at the New York Times, longtime investigative journalist, 
Uh, her latest book is called A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Uh, her website, by the way, is dianabenriquez.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there. Struggling to keep up with credit card payments? Searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt? Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez. She's a contributing writer to the New York Times, longtime investigative journalist and author of a book called A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Welcome back to the show, Diana. Happy to be here. So we can't go through all the details you put in the book, but just kind of give us a run-up to what happened in 1987, the kind of deregulatory framework Mm -hmm. that happened under Reagan. Just kind of give us a brief idea of what set up the situation before we actually get to the crash itself. Right. Well, you know, no big historic event just 
popped out of a blue sky. You know, they all they all had deep roots, and Black Monday was no different. You know, in the early 80s, there were a number of forces that were radically changing Wall Street in ways that we didn't perceive or fully appreciate at the time, and you put your finger on one of them. That was the... the um, uh, the rise of a, a deregulatory philosophy that um, was significant not just because uh, it reduced uh, the regulatory burden on Wall Street, but also because it tended to reduce the budgets available to enforce the laws that stayed on the books, and um, it, it discouraged uh, cooperation across a very fragmented regulatory field. So that was one of the, the new facts of life in the 1980s, a, a balkanized regulatory environment. And at the same time, the markets were becoming unified. We had all these individual regulator, uh, independent regulators for what was really one big marketplace. Another new thing was the rise of titan-sized investors. You know, back before the 1980s, pension funds would, you know, would have thought you were crazy if you suggested they would invest in stocks. You know, stocks were for speculators. They for they were for these crazy, wild-eyed, uh, uh, you know, uh, gunslingers. Prudent men never invested in stocks with pension funds. But the 70s changed all that for a variety of reasons. And in the 80s, major corporate and public pension funds began to move into the stock market in mass for the first time ever. And no one really appreciated how they were going to change things. And then you Another, had the Raiders as well, Carl Icahn and people like that. You had the, you had the Raiders. They, they were very visible on the, on the fringes, and they were um, an, an important factor. But I argue in my book, Jordan, that, that that was a bit of a distraction from the structural changes that we really should have been. Uh, focusing on because these these corporate pension funds were not only becoming um, you know a decisive factor in takeover uh, raids, they were changing the fundamental machinery of the marketplace, and that was what was so important. The third thing that came along in the '80s that we'd never seen before were financial derivatives. Now we've heard a lot about derivatives ever since, but that's when they were born, 1982, and. Beginning in 1982, what do we have? An endless bull market. So we had novel financial derivatives being used by gigantic investors, and they'd never been tested in a downturn. We had no idea what would happen to them in a downdraft until Black Monday. It wasn't pretty. So, so these were all the sort of new. What, what were some forces. of the derivatives, particularly Diana? I mean, options had been out there since the 70s. Stock uh, options had been around, but the newly created derivatives of the early 1980s were stock index futures and options on stock index futures mm -hmm. and stock index options. These were options in futures contracts that were pegged not to an individual commodity or an, even an individual corporate stock. They were pegged to the movements of an overall market index. Well, where were those index movements determined? In the cash market for stocks. So these derivatives shackled the derivatives markets to the cash market for stocks, largely the New York Stock Exchange, shackled them together in ways no one realized until it was too late. And then also you had program trading and, 
advanced computerized trading, which it's, it's even faster today, but yes. that was still relatively new in the mid-80s, right? Yeah, and everyone thought it was blindingly fast then. You're, of course, right that it's, you know, it looks like a, a horse and buggy compared to what we're doing today. But at the time, it was Wall Street's shiny new toy. They couldn't believe how fast you could uh, send orders to the marketplace with these wonderful new computers. Now, if everybody starts sending orders to the marketplace at the same time and they're all the same order, sell the S&P 500, the question arises, to whom? Who's going to buy it when everybody is lining up to sell? So the, those were tectonic plates that had changed. These were huge structural changes in the way our, our market worked that um, we had just not fully comprehended, fully appreciated, and fully regulated. One of the areas that was to protect people against that was so-called portfolio insurance. Yes. Just describe you, how that worked and how it, in the end, didn't actually hurt <laughs> anybody against anything. Well, you know, in almost every crisis, there's some you know hedging strategy that was supposed to protect everybody that doesn't. And this was the one from Black Monday. It was called portfolio insurance, and it was the brainchild of some incredibly smart uh, finance professors at the University of California at Berkeley. And they designed it to be um, a hedging strategy for giant uh, pension fund portfolios and basically what it, it, it was was a, a, a computer program the grandfather of all the algorithms that drive markets today a computer program that regulated how much of your complex portfolio you had to sell in order to uh, protect yourself from a, a downside loss if you wanted to be sure you didn't uh, lose more than five percent in your portfolio you could use a portfolio insurance strategy that when the market began to fall would sort through all of your stocks identify the ones that needed to be sold in what number and send the sell orders so that they could be sold so that by the time the market had fallen five percent you're entirely in cash and you will also using futures this is not only the cash market but this was using futures uh, yes. as well Originally, it was set up to run in the cash market, and that was very cumbersome. So then the S&P 500 futures came along. Portfolio insurance was invented around 1980. 1982, S&P 500 futures comes along, and that radically um, simplifies the process of using portfolio insurance. And portfolio insurance went viral. It went viral. No one had any idea how much of it was being done, how much in portfolio insurance was being laid on, because it wasn't reported anywhere, it wasn't disclosed anywhere. The guesses were wildly wrong. Uh, the most uh, recent public guesses before the Black Monday was that it was maybe $27 billion were involved in portfolio insurance. It turned out it was more than $80 billion were involved and no one knew it. So the um, the pension fund community, institutional investors seized on portfolio insurance um, as a way to have your cake and eat it too, Jordan. You could so on, say, on the day of on the day of the crash itself, when everybody had this portfolio insurance, did that was that a major factor in leading to that kind of cascading sell yes. programs one after another because there was no stopping them. They were all doing it at right. the same time. It it had become a factor several days before Black Monday, in the final days of the week before Black Monday, 
portfolio insurers were starting to sell to bring their uh, insur- you know, to put their hedges up to date because of a falling market. So they were starting to sell. Friday afternoon before Black Monday, they had been selling so heavily the market was just in free fall. So during that weekend, any pro on Wall Street, on the trading floor of the big board in New York, knew that the portfolio insurers were going to be coming back in size to sell even more heavily on Black Monday. So it, it was a, a frightening factor. Now, the, the economists who, have, who, who defend portfolio insurance will tell you, oh, well, it was too small a factor in the market to have had that kind of impact. But that analysis, Jordan, limit, ignores the psychological impact of these sell orders that were hitting the market relentlessly without let up for days on end. Um, you know, markets are, are made up of human beings. They get frightened. And this, these waves of selling um, were, I think, amplified. The impact of them was amplified by the fear that they caused. Now, some would say that uh, uh, we could have gone over the cliff on Tuesday morning. The, the crash happened on Monday. That Tuesday morning, there was a huge, all the companies did buybacks, and they started turning things around the Chicago futures market. Tell us briefly how that worked, how things were coordinated so we didn't end up going over the edge. Well, the fact is it was dumb luck. You know, we, 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 had, we really held on by the skin of our teeth. Um, it was just a few lucky breaks occurring, um, maybe with a little shoves and pushes here and there. A couple, couple things. Two legendary traders on Wall Street, uh, Stanley Shopcorn at Solomon Brothers, Bob Mnuchin, the father of the present Treasury Secretary, at Goldman Sachs. They saw that there were dozens of blue chip stocks that could not find any buy orders at all on the New York Stock Exchange. No one was buying. And at noon on that day, recognizing that the market was about to shut down, they started pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into the market to buy. They talked to each other in a a telephone call that I document in the book. And they, both of their trading desks, dove into the market to start buying. And that put heart and spine into the traders on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Then in Chicago, where the futures uh, prices were in absolute free fall, there was a trader named Blair Hull. He was the only person in his firm who could trade both options and futures. And he needed to meet a margin call, which means he had to reduce a position he had the options market was not functioning. So he ran across into the Chicago Board of Trade. He bought four contracts of a highly illiquid index and his buying kicked the index up. It was the first um, uptick on any market index of the day. And it, it caught people's attention and say, whoa, oh, maybe things are starting to turn then, as you said, corporate buybacks started to be announced. The regulators at the SEC pulled a lot of rules out of the way to speed that process up, and those started to be announced. And, and finally, some big institutions who realized that this was a buying opportunity were able to get orders to the floor. They'd been, been stifled by a lot of the um, computer system breakdowns. So you know, a, a bunch of lucky breaks some um, you know, persuasive people in the banking community who extended credit to the Wall Street firms who needed it. Um, I, could, I could go on, but 
it, it was no by no means a foregone conclusion, and I hope people will see from this book how close run a thing it was, uh, so that they will appreciate how fragile uh, systems can become in the middle of a panic like this. Very much so. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez. She's an investigative journalist, contributing writer to the New York Times. Her book about the crash we just talked about is called A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Her website is dianabenriquez.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez, an investigative journalist, author of the book, A First Class Catastrophe, about the 87 crash. Welcome back to the show, Diana. Thanks. Good to be here. So just kind of let's briefly wrap up what people learned out of the crash. And now, after that, there was all kinds of new regulations, mm-hmm. and Greenspan came in, and mm-hmm. Not so all much, kinds of so. things. So, so now, everything's, <laughs> now everything's perfect. It could never happen perfect. again. Is that the uh, idea? 
Not exactly. Not exactly. No, the frustrating thing about the 87 crash really is we learned so little from it. Um, and here was a crash that involved giant investors using unfamiliar derivatives uh, at high speed with high speed trading um, and herd like investing and a regulatory system that was too balkanized to do anything about it. That's exactly what happened in 2008. I just described the 2008 crisis. Different derivatives, different regulators, different institutions, but the same risk factors as in 87. And when I started researching this book, Jordan, I didn't realize that. I was just doing this book because we were approaching the 30th anniversary of 1987, and it had never gotten a really definitive um, treatment, and I wanted to do that. But when I started researching it, I kept uh, bumping time and time and time again into the, par in the parallels with 2008. Um, people I, I interviewed said, well, you know, this is exactly what happened back in 87, and they would lay it out for me. So it's clear to me that, that the 87 crash really revealed the market of the future. I mean, it, it showed us the future that we're living in right now, where high-speed trading by giant investors in uh, you know, integrated markets that are completely shackled to each other. You can't separate them out. Um, create just enormous structural and systemic risk. We saw that in 87. I will say, in 1987, they were the regulators and the Wall Street leaders at the time somehow instinctively knew that the very worst thing that could happen would be to let a, a strategic firm fail. And they moved heaven and earth to keep firms from failing. Um, and there were dramatic adventures in my book that describe some of those uh, those efforts. We, we forgot that lesson in 2008. And of course, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, most people believe, desperately worsened the, uh, the damage. Do you think it could have been saved? Do you think Lehman Brothers could have been saved? It could have been saved by uh, adequate regulation two years earlier, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. if you look, if you look at the road, um, if, if you look as far ahead of 2008 as I looked ahead of '87, you can see where you could have, where smart intervention to reduce predatory lending before all those loans wound up in mortgage-backed securities, to uh, address the the risks that banks were taking, to improve the regulators' ability to monitor these automated trading strategies. Yeah, I could go back and say, sure. It could have been prevented. But what bothers me is we didn't learn our lessons in 87. We didn't learn our lessons in 08. And we're sitting here with many of the same risk factors still staring us in the face. I mean, the regulators would say that Dodd-Frank came in. We've got the Volcker rules uh, where banks can't do trading, proprietary trading. They've had to spin all that off. We've got significantly important financial institutions. We've got all this international Basel rules. That it, it's solved now. We've, we've figured this out, that the regulators have all the tools they need to handle any crisis. That's what they would say. Yeah, well, they're, they're idiots. Uh, I mean, <laughs> if that's what they say, they're idiots. Because I'll tell you something. Financial crises don't send you a save-the-date card, number one. And they don't tell you what they're going to look like in advance, number two. So what we've done with Dodd-Frank is design a rule book that might possibly have helped us win the last war, but will probably prove useless when we look at what the future crisis is going to be. What if, for example, a crisis arises from the cryptocurrency markets? Suppose a, a dramatic, volatile drop in a key cryptocurrency bankrupts a clearinghouse 
in the in the derivatives markets. That I guarantee you, because I've read it, there is nothing in Dodd Frank that will help them respond to that. And so, we've had that. We've had Mount Gox went under. Yes, exactly, exactly. And yet, right this minute, the CFTC, the the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which regulates the uh, the derivatives markets, and the SEC, which regulates the securities markets, are at absolute loggerheads over how to regulate cryptocurrencies. They cannot reach an agreement. So. When I say we still have the same balkanized, fragmented regulatory system, I mean that literally. We are still at loggerheads among our regulators about radical changes in the way our financial markets work that they have not addressed yet. Is that one of your biggest concerns is the whole rise of the cryptocurrency market? Is, it could set something off? It, it is a concern. That I, it's, not, it's not my biggest concern simply because of scale. My biggest concern today and it sounds paradoxical, I'll admit, is index investing and index ETFs. Because the, uh, the rise of indexing, while it makes perfect sense for the individual, you know that, you know, the average individual who can't manage their investments probably should be in an index fund. But what happens when everybody is in an index fund? What happens when index funds are the only investors in the market? Who are they going to sell to when they need to sell? This, the, this is the mystery of liquidity. In every crisis we have ever had, it came down to people misunderstanding or overestimating how liquid the market was going to be in a crisis. So and, saying really index funds has kind of created liquidity in one way, but in other ways created less liquidity because they're all on one side of the boat, kind of. Yeah. They all own the same thing. They're all going to have to sell the same thing at exactly the same moment. And I say, to whom? Are, are to there whom similar things sell? today to insurance, uh, portfolio insurance? That there, the there are experts who tell me there are. Uh, Jim Grant, makes, uh, who uh, publishes a wonderful uh, yeah. uh, newsletter called Grant's Interest Rate, he, he has identified a number of um, investment strategies that are in, in institutional use today that he uh, believes are the... Um, carbon copies of portfolio insurance. Yeah. There are there are certainly um, uh, herd-like derivative strategies that everybody is using um, that um, are are designed to be to hedge your risks. In a way, Jordan, credit default swaps, the bugaboo of two thousand eight, yes. were that was a form of of market insurance. You were right. insuring yourselves against a, a credit default. That's and it all ended up in one place at AIG. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it needs to be bailed out. And yeah. Everyone assumed that there was a liquid market for those things until there wasn't. Yeah. And yeah. then you couldn't sell them at any price, and they and people had to mark them down. So, it, you know, it's frustrating to say we're making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, but but we are. I mean, we we are still regulating the market as it looked in 1975. We are yep. not regulating the market we live in today. Do you know? I mean, only ninety percent, ninety percent of the trading, stock trading, every day in this country is done by computers. Only ten percent is done by human beings. Does and, that worry you? The high frequency trading and the amount of it and the speed of it t today? Yes, yes, because it stresses uh, mechanical systems that we have not adequately tested. We do not adequately understand, um, and you know. 
as I point out in, in my book, uh, you know, you don't need a, a psychological panic to screw things up. A computer malfunction will work perfectly well. Thank you. And the more complex our computer trading gets, uh, the more it introduces the possibilities for the kind of computer glitches that we saw in the flash crash of 2010 that right. we've seen on multiple flash crashes in other markets and on other occasions since then. So, yeah, it does worry me. I think uh, regulators need to be far more attentive to it than they've been. Let's go to some of the other topics you've covered. You had many, many different investigative stories over the years. One of the ones you talked about was uh, selling life insurance to um, recently enlisted uh, military people. Just kind of briefly tell the story of uh, the scandal that was happening there. Well, um, it was both life insurance policies, a form of life insurance policies, and a form of mutual fund investments that were being sold through um, kind of uh, um, financial institutions that wrapped themselves in the military flags. You know, they put a lot of retired military brass on their boards. They hired a lot of retired military people as their salespeople. And they marketed these products sometimes in very deceptive ways to young service members who were very unsophisticated about their financial needs. Um, and as a result, they were ripped off. I mean, they were, they were sold policies that were useless to them, that had an enormously high lapse rate, um, and that were extremely expensive. Um, that investigation was one of the most difficult, but I will say one of the most gratifying that I've ever done, because um, once we exposed what was going on, uh, through these sales practices on military bases. The Pentagon cracked down. Uh, laws were changed to make some of these investments illegal. And best of all, cash refunds for something like you know, tens of thousands of service members. So, so that doesn't uh, exist uh, anymore, then? They don't have this uh, anymore? It's, it's a perpetual problem. It requires eternal vigilance. But uh, certainly, I think the, uh, the Pentagon and its support agencies are far more attuned to protecting their service members from financial predators than they were before this series ran. So what kind of pushback did you get when you found start, like there was a company called American Amicable, I guess. Yeah. Another one. Did you get a lot of pushback from them saying you're being unpatriotic or something? <laughs> well, I, I would get pushback saying you don't understand how great these products are. Um, that that was a little, that was fairly easy uh, to to deal with, um, but um, they had stayed under the radar for a long time, and they'd been very generous contributors to members of the armed services panels uh, committees in Congress um, who had influence over the Pentagon, um, and so by shedding some light on what they were doing. Uh, I think one of the things that the series achieved was it it cost them their political influence. Yes. Overnight, overnight, no candidate running anywhere near a military base wanted their money. No, no one wanted any contrib contributions from them because everyone you know, had read the stories. So, um, so in a way, um, the the pushback was more political than uh, than than. Um, troublesome for me. It was a, it was a story where, um, you know, the, the military is not a natural ally of the New York Times. This won't come as a, as a big shock to you. Uh, there are many people in the military who, are, who believe that the New York Times was way too liberal for them. And, um, yeah. but on this issue, for many of the, the people in the JAG Corps, especially 
the, the uh, military lawyers, we were on the same side. We were trying to stop a predatory practice, and they began, they came to understand that if they could help me get gather the ammunition, the New York Times had a great cannon, and we could we could start shooting some holes in some very bad practices. So it was a, a fascinating experience for me as a reporter. Great. We have to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez, an investigative reporter for the New York Times for many years. Uh, she's done a book about the crash called uh, A First Class Catastrophe, and you can find out more at her website, dianabenriquez.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Diana Enriquez, an investigative journalist with the New York Times. She's written a book about the crash and many other things. Her website is dianabenriquez.com. Welcome back to the show, Diana. Thanks, Jordan. So one of your other famous uh, takedowns, I guess you might say, was Bernie Madoff. Um, so, And you were involved in the movie uh, about him as well. I think you're actually in the movie, as I remember, right? I, I, I am. I play myself uh, interviewing Robert De Niro, who plays yes. Bernie Madoff masterfully. 
So were you the first one to see that something wasn't adding up there, and how did that lead to exposing what happened with Madoff? No, I've got I've got to give uh, credit where credit is due, and I have I take no credit for having exposed Bernie Madoff. I wish I could have. Um, the the one whistleblower who was trying to to alert the media to uh, to his suspicions about Bernie Madoff never approached me, and I. I gave him a piece of my mind for not having done so after the story uh, broke. Markopoulos, so, right? Madoff, yeah, yes, yeah. Harry Markopoulos. Now, Madoff was not exposed um, uh, by the media, although there were two pieces in 2000, um, 2001, that raised some doubts about the consistency of his results. But if you, even in hindsight, if you go back and look at those, they would not necessarily have given you uh, a reason to doubt that he was legitimate. This was one of the most trusted and admired men on the street. Yes. I mean, Bernie, Bernie Madoff was a, was a Wall Street legend. Um, he helped create the modern NASDAQ market. Um, his form performed, performed beautifully during the 1987 crash, by the way. He got a commendation from regulators for that. When NASDAQ firms were, were sued by the Justice Department for fixing prices in the 1990s, conspicuous by his absence from the defendants, Bernie Madoff. He he was the only innocent, the only honest Nasdaq broker in, uh, in that uh, in that scandal. Yeah. So he was trusted, he was respected and admired, and um, this this Ponzi scheme that he was running was was diabolical for exactly that reason. Everyone trusted him, and he. Were you shocked him. when it came out? Stunned, I was stunned. Uh -huh. um, but, and when I was finally able to to interview Madoff in prison. I was the first uh, journalist who interviewed him in prison and I did two prison interviews with him and continued a correspondence uh, through emails and letters and phone calls over the years. In fact, we still exchange letters now. But, um, so I've so tried- So how did he get away because of that trust? Yes. I mean, there were the feeder yes. funds, all yes. these trades were not actually happening. I mean, he afterwards, did. when he fell down, everybody said, oh, you see what, but before, how did he get away with it for so long well, and see, $50 billion? Dollars? That's the thing about con men. Everybody thinks, you know, in 2020 hindsight, they say, oh, every, you know, I would never have fallen for that. Well, yes, you would, because that's what con men do. You know, con men, uh, if they can't win your trust and keep it, they need to go into another line of work. You know, that, that is what they do, and that is what Bernie did. So I'm, I have no patience with people who say, oh, I never would have trusted him. Yeah, you would have. Everybody did. Um, and then his betrayal somehow sort of came to seem like the whole betrayal of Main Street by Wall Street. Yeah, there's uh, still what I call the Madoff effect. People don't yeah. trust anybody over anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So let's just briefly go to Enron, which you also had quite a few stories about. Uh, were you suspicious when they kept getting bigger and bigger and people couldn't figure out how they were doing it? Well, I'm always suspicious when people can't figure out how they're doing it. You know, that there's these black box um, companies. We just saw this happen with uh, Theranos, the, the blood yes. testing company. You know, the, these mysterious companies that have these fabulous ways of making money, but they can't explain them to you. Um, you know, they, they can't let you see inside. They can't take you into the lab. Should always raise suspicions. Um, the, the rapid growth of Enron was certainly something that uh, attracted a lot of journalists' attention. And it was, in fact, a terrific journalist and a good friend, Bethany McLean, who helped 
uh, write the stories that put Enron under the microscope. Um, the Wall Street Journal did an outstanding job as well, Jonathan Weil on their staff. And when financial journals started to look into the numbers, suddenly a little bit of the, the dazzle that had blinded everybody started to fade and they could start to see some real questions. The biggest one of which, which I wrote about, was the conflicts of interest that the board of directors allowed the Enron executives to maintain. Um, the chief financial officer had a controlling stake in private partnerships that were doing deals with Enron. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, you don't need a, an MBA to know that that is wrong, that is dangerous, and that should not happen. So um, the, the big lesson to me in Enron, and one that remains, as you know, so relevant today is conflicts of interest matter. When people you know, complain about uh, conflicts of interest occurring in the political scene, in the corporate scene, they matter. And they matter because they blind you to um, whose ox is getting gored. I mean, who, who's really uh, benefiting from a deal? Is it the company? So again, after, after Enron, there were all kinds of laws put in yes. where the CFO had to sign personally. They would be personally liable and yeah. getting rid of all these conflicts. Do you think there are other companies the size of Enron are huge ones out there that have not been discovered yet. Um, I, I, I'm less. I, I think not. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say not huge companies. I think Sarbanes-Oxley, which was adopted after um, uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley law adopted after Enron, yep. um, I think did address some of the really structural conflicts that had impaired the accounting and audit function. And I think in general, the financial media is far more attuned to monitoring how good the audits are today than there were. Now, I'm not saying that somebody still can't get away with, um, uh, you know, with, with, with a huge scam. I mean, we, we have seen, unfortunately, seen them too recently. Um, but I don't think um, that, that people are quite as casual about uh, the audit function as they were before Enron. Uh, Enron. That, that was an enormous wake-up call. When we say Enron, we're thinking about that specific uh, corporation, Jordan, but you know there were dozens of companies that restated their earnings in those years. Enron was just the first of dozens of dominoes that fell. I think at one point we were up to you know, 44 blue-chip companies that it had to restate their earnings. Um, yeah, and World say, well, another one. Yeah, yes. Global Crossing and on and on and on. Um, yeah. And it became a, a, an epidemic. And that was a shocking and I think a salutary uh, um, uh, reforms. Um, it's, it still requires eternal vigilance, heaven knows. Uh, but I do think we can look at Enron as something that did produce some sanity and move us a little better into a safer direction. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Diana Enriquez. Uh, she is a contributing writer in the New York Times, longtime investigative journalist. Her book is called A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. You can find out more at her website, dianabenriquez.com. Thanks for a very interesting interview, Diana. Thank you, Jordan. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.